0: Hamilton and this is Beyond Well. It's a podcast for people who want to learn more about the interior of their lives. Every week we delve into one topic along with my co hosts, Dr. Brian Goff and Dr. Jenna Lejeune. And this week we're going to explore parenting explosive kids with Dr. Stuart Avlon, the director of Think Kids in the Department of Psychiatry at Massachusetts General Hospital. He's also an associate professor in the Thomas Denberg Endowed Chair in Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at Harvard Med. And Dr. Avalon has written so many books about so many things that I wish I'd read when I was parenting a child. I welcome you to the show, Stuart. How nice to have you with us.
1: Well, thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here. appreciate you having me. I
0: I think one of the most profound things you say that really stuck with me, and I've seen you speak before. By the way, if you ever want a really dynamic speaker, Stuart's very good. But you begin with this premise that difficult kids aren't difficult. They just have a skills deficit. What do you mean by that?
1: Sure. What we, we, we'd like to say really is um, the sort of a philosophy behind our work, which is kids do well if they can, which is simply meant to uh, suggest that if a kid could do well, he would do well. And if he's not doing well, well, something's standing in his way, and it's probably a bit more complicated than he doesn't want to do well. So um, what kids do well if they can suggests is if they're not doing well, let's try to figure out what's getting in their way. And what all the research suggests is that kids who exhibit challenging behaviors, what they struggle with are certain skills and skills in areas like flexibility and frustration tolerance and problem solving. So what we help teach is this is about skill, not will. These kids are struggling with certain skills, not dissimilar to what we might say about a child who's struggling to read, who lacks the skills necessary to decode words, for example. These are kids who struggle with skills necessary to be flexible, to tolerate frustration, to problem-solve effectively in the world.
0: Doesn't that just mean I'm lacking parenting skills?
1: Well, I don't know that that's quite true, actually, because um, you know there's a whole number of different causes for lagging skills. Just like you, to carry on the analogy, I was just saying, you know, if your child has dyslexia, it used to be that we would blame parents for not reading to their child and things like that. But now we know it's a lot more complicated than that and I think historically we have long blamed parents. I mean, when I say we, uh, my field as a child psychologist, uh, child, you know, psychology, psychiatry, we've long blamed parents for things that later on we learn actually they had a whole lot less to do with than we thought. I mean, more recently, you know, fairly recently we used to blame mothers for autism. Uh. We called, you know, we had this term called refrigerator mothers. It was thought that cold, unempathic mothering caused autism. And that's just silly. You know, now it's been completely disproven. And I think there's something similar when it comes to challenging behavior. It's not as simple as, um, you know, poor parenting causes kids to lack skills that lead to their challenging behavior. Now, there's a lot more involved than that.
2: Yeah, Stuart, one of the things I was thinking about with with your research, and I'm an adult psychologist, not a kid person, but it seems to me that what you're talking about about if we're approaching this as, well, kids just don't want to do well and we just have to motivate them more and they just have to try harder, um, that works about as well as it does when we approach parents that same way. Like, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm guessing it's probably the same sort of thing. Like, it's not helpful to say to the parent, well, you just have to try harder to be a, a good parent. Like, maybe there is also something standing in the way of the parent being able to do the things that would be most effective to help a, a child who is um, having challenging problems.
1: You got it. I mean, no parent wants their child to be behaving in a challenging way. And so that philosophy that I mentioned a moment ago, kids do well if they can, what we've learned over the years working with adults who help kids is guess who else would do well if they could? Sure, Us, adults, parents, teachers, clinicians, people do well if they can. And uh, no, actually, parents of kids who exhibit challenging behavior, they work harder than any other parent. I mean, if you've got an easy kid, you don't have to work very hard. Parenting is always challenging, but, you know, if you've got a very challenging kid, you are working extraordinarily hard. And, And so, you know, I think one of the things that's helpful about the approach we teach is that we start off not by blaming the child or by blaming the adult. Right. Because... Everybody's doing the best they can with the skills they have mm-hmm. to contend what's being contend with what's being thrown at them, both the child and their parents.
3: Yeah, Stuart, this is uh, Brian here. I'm also uh, an adult psychologist that don't really work with kiddos, but I have some kiddos. and it and it seems to me like one of the tricks about uh, getting away from the assumption that the kids don't have the or they getting away from the assumption that the kids should just try harder. Uh, and that they actually can do stuff is that sometimes difficult kids are intermittently skillful.
1: So you (laughs) sort of are like,
3: well, it's, I mean, that, that skillfulness has to be in the repertoire, right? Because I saw them do it uh, yesterday or earlier today. Why are they being such pills now? But then it's like, I mean, to be honest, I am an intermittently skillful parent uh, you got it. It <laughs> <laughs> sometimes is very much not so, and I'm not giving this link to my kids. to listen to this. <laughs> and so no, it's like, it's, I know that it, skillful it, parenting is in my repertoire. My A right. game is pretty good. It's just that a lot of the times I show up with my C game.
1: That's right. And are you not trying hard enough in those moments? No. And I think one of the things that's really important to know is that it's not like we humans either have a skill or don't. It's a dichotomous rating skill. Right, that's right. Uh, no, it's, it, we have skills in certain degrees along a continuum, but our ability to apply those skills changes on that continuum based upon two things, the state and the context that we're in. The Absolutely. context, meaning mm. the situation that yeah. we're in, and as a result, the brain state that we're in. So, you know, if you're in a nice, calm, resting state as a result of a context that is very helpful for you, you've got full access to all of your skills. But yeah. all of us have seen how when un- under stress, anxiety, or panic, fear, those very same skills that we had are nowhere to be found, and oftentimes that's when we most need them. So wow. you know, Amen. I, I think we say all the time, I've seen him do it, doesn't that mean he can't, he can do it again? No, it doesn't. It means he can do it in that circumstance, in that state. And again, that does apply
0: to all of us. I'm also just thinking about the complications of, say, for instance, with a kid who's getting dressed and you see them get dressed and on time uh, two days of the week. And on the other three days, you're wondering, well, what skill set has changed? But the stress in the house might have changed. What happened on social media might have changed the night before his, you know, where his hormones or her hormones are at might be changing. So how do we actually get to some of the underlying mechanisms of what is in the way, Dr. Avalon?
1: Well the, the nice thing is that challenging behavior rarely actually occurs out of the blue and when when I'm talking about this I'm not just talking about kids I'm talking about adults as well I mean uh... You, you know you guys are talking about being a, you know um, working with adults well this approach has been applied in adult settings and even adult correctional facilities and psychiatric hospitals and so you know really tough settings with adults and we find the same things there that we find with you know in a preschool classroom or or any home challenging behaviors predictable it t- t- tends to occur under predictable circumstances when certain things are asked of a child in certain situations with certain demands or antecedents and so the nice thing about that is that you can make a literally a list of the specific things that tend to trigger the person's challenging behavior and you know then that also has the great advantage of you can work on them proactively so uh, you know a, a, a big part of this approach is First, being really careful about noticing when these things happen. And they often seem like they're disjointed, out of the blue. Um, Pay close attention and you'll see very clear patterns. So Jenna, you were
0: talking about calling this psychological flexibility repertoire. What do you mean by that?
2: Well, from the um, approach that Brian and I come to this work from, we come at this from a contextual behavioral science approach or an ACT approach. And we just call sort of these skills, this set of skills that we need to be able to deal with the difficult thoughts and feelings and sensations that show up as psychological flexibility. So psychological flexibility involves things like being able to notice thoughts when they come up and not necessarily just automatically react to those thoughts as being truths. Mm. Same thing with the um, emotions that show up. So that could be um, what Stuart is talking about in the the distress tolerance. We also talk about that in terms of willingness or acceptance. And just the sense of kind of at its heart, being able to be flexible and respond to these changing contexts, both state and kind of external context so that we can um, act effectively in the service of our goals and values. Hmm. That's what we are talking about. And I think it's very consistent with the CPS approach that Stuart's talking about as well.
0: So is the goal that we're talking about this time to get the kid to school and have a good morning where people aren't screaming at each other? Is that, I mean, are well, are the goals that immediate?
2: Well, I might say that from where I stand, the goal is probably larger. The goal is probably something like for the, for the kid to be able to feel like she or he is, has efficacy in their life and they're able to be the kind of person that they most want to be because the the kid who's having challenging behaviors, I'm guessing they don't want to be that way either. It's probably most distressing for them. So the largest goal is to be able to help them be more of the person that they want to be, which can also include being able to get dressed in the morning. Mm. Mm
0: -hmm. So Brian, so many people parent through reward or punishment, then where does this fall along the line if that's been your two fallback?
3: I think that falls back to the idea of capacity versus will. Like if I really, really want to, I can make you want it. If I don't think you want it, then I can just make you want it more or I can make what you're doing that I don't like. I can make that a lot less appealing, right? But it's a lot of carrot and stick and carrot and stick. But if I don't have distress tolerance, if I don't have emotion regulation, if I don't have willingness or diffusion or all the sorts of stuff that, uh, both in the CPS and in the act world are these kind of in your skin skills, uh, then that'll just be frustrating.
0: Hmm.
2: And I would, I would even add, not only will it just be frustrating, but one of the things I was struck by uh, in your TED Talk, Stuart, was you make this leap of if we aren't teaching our kids these skills now – then they're going to grow up and think that might is right is the way to start dealing with problems. And, you know, personally, I think we see a lot of examples of that in people in leadership right now. So not only is it like it's going to be frustrating for the kid now, but you're creating a whole lot of problems in the future if we don't teach people how to be able to deal with some of these internal struggles, Mm.
1: Let me chime in for a moment, though, on this, uh, this good discussion about the uh, use of rewards and punishments, carrot and stick approaches, because, you know, I think there are a number of problems with those approaches that even go beyond what we've, we've discussed so far. I mean, they're often barking up the wrong therapeutic tree because, uh, you know, the person's not lacking the will to behave well, they lack the skills to behave well, so that's absolutely true. Uh, But in addition, you know, I think there's some big side effects that we really ignore, uh, one of which is that it's been well proven by thousands of studies at this point that the more you use a -a carrot-on-a-stick approach to try to to entice somebody to do something, Mm -hmm. the less motivated that person is intrinsically, Mm -hmm. internally, to actually pursue the goal you want them to pursue. So when we dangle things in front of people to try to get them to do stuff, People become much more interested in getting the stuff, but they actually become less interested in the actual goal you want to pursue. And, and this is true in the workplace. This is true in homes and schools. So we're constantly undermining people's intrinsic drive with, a, with, with our obsession with external reinforcers. Mm. Oh, uh, like, if we go I, back I... to challenging kids, I think there's a, a, a perhaps even more catastrophic um, side effect which is that, you know, with every reward and consequence we send a kid's way, we're sending the not-so-subtle message that we believe that a big part of the problem is they're not trying hard enough. And, you know, if you teach a kid that they're not trying hard enough, eventually they're going to believe you. And that's just disastrous to a kid's self-esteem. And, you know, I'll go back to my analogy of a learning disability. We used to treat kids with learning disabilities that way. We used to assume that they were lazy or dumb. And the reality it was, those kids are trying harder than anybody else mm. to, for instance, read. And so I think it's very dangerous when our interventions are reinforcing notions about a kid that are inaccurate and lead to incredibly poor self-esteem. So, you know, these these uh, interventions are harmful in a whole different way.
3: Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I, and, and I think intuitively people get that punishments are problematic because the the punishment gets associated with the punisher rather than the problematic behavior. But as you said, even carrots Mm -hmm. are problematic. I'm reminded of a very old study where, you know, I'm sure this is one of many examples, those thousand studies that you referred to of kids, uh, who are asked to color and half of the class, uh, they're given I think cookies or stickers or something like that for coloring for 30 minutes and the other ones are just asked to color for 30 minutes and then afterwards both groups are asked how enjoyable the coloring was and the ones that got rewarded for coloring say that the coloring wasn't as enjoyable oh
0: interesting yeah. and I and, so even a short-term reward is makes it less enjoyable yeah and I,
2: I would even add to that like Uh, I so appreciate you bringing up the intrinsic reward here that that using carrots, even if it works in the short run, can have these longer term consequences. And and that's why, you know, from the way that I speak about when I talk about like helping the kid contact their values, that is like being the person they would most want to be that's tapping into that intrinsic reinforcer. It's, it's intrinsically reinforcing for the child to be the person they're most proud of being. And that if we can help the child start contacting that more, that's just going to be self-sustaining as opposed to giving them the carrot, whatever the carrot is, every time they do something well.
0: I'm thinking you guys about the a poor mom who's in a checkout line and the kid is oh, has yeah. grabbed a candy bar and is wailing at the top of his or her lungs and thinking mm-hmm. there's no way to talk about intrinsic values at that point. So, <laughs> So when do you start with this kind of training? When do you how How do you begin this kind of discussion with a young mind? I'd like you to sort of visualize it for our listeners what it is that that looks like for even toddler age. Stuart, go ahead.
1: Sure. Well, I mean again, the first thing I'll just remind you of is challenging behavior is predictable. So the worst time to try to deal with a predictable problem with anybody of any age is when the problem's right in front of you, and particularly when you've got a, a toddler yelling, screaming. You know, when somebody's completely dysregulated, they have no access to the smart part of their brain, Mm -hmm. and trying to problem-solve or uh, build skills is wishful thinking at that point. So, you know, many times where people are looking for help, what do you do in this situation? The short answer is anything you can do to calm things down (laughs) and then try to identify why this happened in the first place, and now you need to carve out time to have a proactive conversation. And, you know, the the nice thing about um, this approach, collaborative problem solving, we teach is that the ingredients of the problem solving process, which are the same with a young child or or an adult, you know, they're, um, they're simple, but not easy. But they are simple enough that a neurotypically developing three-year-old, so a three-year-old who things are going to, according to a plan developmentally, can fully engage in the process of collaborative problem solving, mm. which in essence, is really just with your help trying to identify what their concern is, their perspective, what's hard for them about a situation, and having them understand what your, in this case, parental perspective or point of view is, what your concerns are, and then engaging in some brainstorming aimed at arriving at solutions that address both parties' concerns. And we have plenty of evidence that neurotypically developing three-year-olds can do that. They can let you know some of their basic concerns. They can appreciate the basic concerns of others, and they can uh, generate some rudimentary ideas for solutions that are indeed mutually satisfactory.
3: You know, Stuart, you were mentioning about context and uh, sort of the variability of skillful behavior, and I've got this image of, you know, they tell you when uh, a plane de- uh, loses its uh what's it called? Uh, th- no, no, Tor- the, oh. the stuff inside pressure. Oh, pressure. Thank uh-huh. you very much. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, I'm all fired on all cylinders here. Um, that, that the, uh, the adults are supposed to put their masks on first mm. before they do for the kids. So hypothetically, let's call a parent. I don't know. Let's say Brian. And uh, <laughs> it, it occurs to me that, that, When your child is engaging in this really disruptive behavior, that becomes the context within which the parent has to show up and be really skillful or the context that is uh, influencing the child to act in the the least skillful manner is the same context that is interfering with the parent's ability to sort of show up and do this work. Mm. Can you speak to that?
1: Well, I think if I'm hearing you right, Brian, the way I often talk about this is that word I used before, dysregulation, Mm -hmm. it's contagious. And so there's nothing like a kid beginning to get frustrated or dysregulated that dysregulates adults as well. And then we're off to the races. Yep. And the only good news here is that the opposite, regulation, is also contagious. Mm-hmm. In that if somebody is getting dysregulated, but a person, a caring, empathic person next to them is able to stay relatively calm, mm, yes. it can help regulate the other. And, you know, we want to be fancy about it. We call that co-regulation. And it's how infants build their ability to regulate their emotions in the first place. They, they, they can't do it on their own. They, they learn it in interactions with caring adults who are able to stay somewhat calm while they're getting really upset so you know boil this all down what does it mean i often say to people that <laughs> the, the, the uh, biggest goal and the biggest challenge working with challenging kids that's nothing to do with the kids it, it's us parents that we need to find ways to stay calm ourselves and mm-hmm. you know all the uh, you can give all the training in the world to a parent that training is only so good as they as they're able to access it in the moment right? Right. and again to sort of use their cortex so it's all about how do you keep people regulated mm. and right, that's cause... why again you know we make it a very clear point that you need to have proactive problem-solving conversations so the parent can choose the time uh, the, the place the activity when they're they've prepared for the conversation they're catching their kid when they're calm mm-hmm. this is hard enough when everybody's calm but you know, you want to maximize those chances. And the other thing is, it takes me right back to the beginning of our conversation today. When we teach people this approach, we really emphasize the philosophy, the understanding that this is about skill, not will, that kids do well if they can, because that, in and of itself, is regulating. Mm, because yes. if you're a parent and your kid is behaving poorly, and you think they have it within them to not behave that well, but they are purposely, willfully, manipulatively giving you a hard time, you're pissed, and you get dysregulated right along with them. If, however, you look at your kid and you say, this poor kid's trying the best they can, this is so much harder than, for them than other kids, this is really tough, I need to help, it helps the parents stay regulated as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that really is more than half the battle. Mm-hmm
2: sure and i imagine if i'm that parent at the grocery store and my kid is, is having their temper tantrum over the kit kat that they want or something like that in that moment it it's going to be hard for me to stay regulated potentially and then i think what you're saying is the same skill that that parent that you're asking that parent to provide to their child You're also asking the parent to provide to themselves like how could they also be able to take their own perspective to have empathy for their own situation so that they can kind of regulate their emotion in that moment because a whole bunch of self-criticism and going to show up in that moment probably is not going to help the parent be able to self-regulate.
1: I, and there's no I, doubt about
0: that. I loved but. I love the question if you can try to shift the perspective from what is wrong with them to being curious about I wonder what I could be doing right now to actually help them. It really takes it takes that sort of energy the, the context of that energy that's so damaging and everybody is like freaking out to huh, one of curiosity, which is a whole different body set, right? Yeah,
2: my my Actually, one of the main reasons I got interested in uh, contextual behavioral science and behaviorism to begin with is this quote from B.F. Skinner, the father of behaviorism, and he talks about the rat is always right. And I love that because it, it shifts us from this place of wondering what the hell is wrong with them, whether them is my partner or my kid or my client. Or me. Or Brian, my co-host. <laughs> or sorry, you meant me.
3: I meant you. You did. I or,
2: did. And also you, maybe. Maybe. both. both. (laughs) Two, uh, being curious about, huh, I wonder what I could do to help this person learn or even what is it that I need to learn in this moment? So it's a shift to a place of curiosity.
0: So Dr. Abalon, these um, are these workshops that you do for a weekend. Is it a process that people go through to attempt to learn these uh, skills, the skill building that you talk about?
1: Well, so we offer all kinds of different training opportunities for people from sort of brief exposure training to much more intensive training. And, you know, we try to um, follow what we've learned about not only how kids learn new skills, but how adults learn new skills. And the good news is you can change the adult brain, but it requires repetition and practice and dosing over time. Mm. So, You know, just sort of having a one-and-done training um, really doesn't produce a, a bunch of change. So for most parents, what you'll need is you'll need to have some beginning exposure to the ideas, and then you'll need to go out and try it. And be able to get some more assistance along the way. And for that reason, you know, we do offer a whole continuum of training from online brief exposure to in-person day-long ones to two-and-a-half-day intensive trainings. We have a certification program where uh, parents and others can get certified in the approach, and so we can attest to their ability to apply it with high fidelity individually. So there are a whole range of, of possibilities, but really the beginning is just exposing parents to the idea that kids do well if they can, and that challenging behavior is about skill, not will, and that there is an alternative to a reward and punishment based or motivational uh, based system of parenting. And that's really the starting point.
0: Can we leave with you just commenting on why you refer to your grandpa saying common sense ain't too common?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my grandfather, who's 102, um, grew up in Tupelo, Mississippi. Uh, I spent a lot of time with him, especially when I was younger. Very wise. He has all kinds of great sayings, So one of them is whenever somebody says something about common sense, he says, common sense ain't too common. Uh, and, you know, look, I think that the conventional wisdom about challenging behavior is that people behave poorly on purpose to get stuff or to get out of or avoid stuff. And that sets in motion how we deal with challenging behavior. But the more challenging a kid is, um, sort of the the more we adhere to that conventional wisdom, and it's just plain wrong. Mm. Uh, Common sense is wrong here. Uh, I mean, sorry, conventional wisdom is wrong. Common sense is realizing that, you know, this is going to be miserable for the kid as well. If the kid would, he could. If she could, she would. Something else has got to be getting in the way. So, you know, um, we've got to be really careful here not to subscribe to conventional wisdom. And when I talk about kids do well if they can, if he could, he would. If he's not, something's getting in his way. If people think to themselves, duh, this doesn't sound too exciting. Well, guess what? It's a revolutionary way of thinking about these kids, because the more challenging the kid is, the less people adhere to common sense, and the more they get stuck unconventional wisdom.
0: Well, I will just, and I'm sorry, I promise you last question, but this just brings up a point for me. You say that you can use this approach most with kids who are violent, who have become completely dysregulated and out of control. How so?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. You started off, we said we were uh, talking about explosive kids, and I was noticing that over the years, we've really stopped using that phrase Mm. uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, I don't think it's too too, uh, kind of a way of describing the kids. That's their behavior, not the kids'. Uh, but secondly, over the years, what we found is that this way of thinking and working with kids, collaborating with kids, is just as effective for the imploders as it is for the exploders. Mm. So, you know, um, there's some kids who, when their behavior is challenging, it's defiant, aggressive, scary, unsafe. Other kids take it out on themselves, um, and what we psychologists call internalizing symptoms. And it's the same lagging skills that lead to that type of challenging behavior as well. And so, you know, these days we we don't pay as much attention to the flavor of challenging behavior and instead really focus people on, again, if they could be doing better, they would, what are they struggling with instead? Uh, The approach has been sort of well-documented to be rather effective with some of the most challenging kids in terms of externalizing behaviors, but we really want people to be aware that, Uh, this can be applied across the board to uh, exploders as well as imploders.
0: Dr. Avalon, thanks so much for spending the half hour with us. We're going to continue talking about this, but really appreciate your expertise.
1: My pleasure. It's a great conversation to be a part of. I appreciate you all having me, and I'll look forward to listening to the rest of it along with the other listeners.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. I was thinking how many times in my uh, experience raising my daughter, that I was always sort of of like, uh, oh, I can't believe that she's such a good kid. And then in the few times that she was really obstinate, that she was really losing control, that she was really, I was like, I'm such a terrible parent. I can't even believe this. I mean, look at me, I'm completely losing control. I'm yelling like my mother used to yell at me, which was a promise I made to myself that I would not yell. Mm. And I did it and it was like all of that calm parenting, all I thought I'd done was wiped away in my own mind as wow, crappy parenting crappy parent Mm.
2: yeah and I imagine the same thing goes for the kids as well you know how many times are they not screwing up Versus the one time that they are screwing up and they're getting so down on themselves, or they're acting out because they're feeling so much shame or down on themselves, and that is kind of the way human minds work—at least most of our minds. We pick, we cherry pick the ones that like totally. that that are the stickiest for us, and yeah. usually those are the ones that you know we weren't at our best. We were at our C or D game, maybe.
3: Absolutely, across yeah. the board. I yeah. think that it's so easy to discount the successes and it's so easy to discount when things go smoothly and um, or if you do have uh either you don't notice them or it's sort of like the blind squirrel find a nut, you know, like, well, my kid's pretty easy. That's not that, you know, mm-hmm. it's probably anybody could step in and do this yeah. kind of thing. And then when something goes sideways, it's like, God, I suck at this.
2: <laughs> well, well it's, it's that too. But I mean, think about the parent that who's, I'm thinking about a time when I was little, the the kid who's in Fred Meyer or wherever it is, who's screaming her head off having a temper tantrum. Mm-hmm. Well, everybody in that Fred Meyer is looking at the parent, like my mom in this case, thinking, what the hell is wrong with that kid? Like, what's wrong with this parent? Yeah. Versus the you know nine thousand other times I was in Fred Meyer and I was behaving just fine. Right. Nobody's coming up to her and saying, "Wow, good look job. at that fine, <laughs> finally raised done such a good job." Right. <laughs> nobody's saying
3: that to her. <laughs> having a Target appropriate child, <laughs> exactly. Or Fred Meyer exactly. appropriate child. Yeah. So,
0: so one of the things that kind of shocked me about Dr. Appleton's approach when he was talking about really you can begin this kind of communication with even a toddler, and I, I am seeing this all the time now with parents where you're out at a park or at a restaurant and the parents on their phone and the kid is doing everything to try to get their attention. Mm-hmm. They're really trying to, to start that communication, the building blocks of that communication, which is, hi, what are your needs? How do I help you feel better as your as a human being right now? That's a parent's job, right? And the kid giving them that kind of feedback, like now's the time I need this attention. And so I guess one of my questions is, if we don't develop that early, that give and take of what real parenting is based on, how are we going to do it later? How are these kids going to, what is going to become of them when they're really acting out for the the basic necessities of communication, you know?
2: Yeah, I think having your child be able to know, oh, I can express needs and in general, those needs will be met is very important. But I think probably what's even more important than that for I'm guessing most of our listeners sort of have a sense like, yeah, I probably shouldn't be on my phone all the time when my kid's like reaching out and wanting attention from me. And you know what? Like we're human. And every once in a while, I'm going to get caught on my phone while, you know, my kid's (laughs) reaching out for me. Not that I have kids, but, you know, and to also like cut each other a little bit of slack when you see a parent mm. there who you mm-hmm. think, and this is really easy for me being a non-parent, yeah. oh man, I can go out there and I'm like, oh, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. Oh, you're not being in- incredibly responsive to your child right now. Mm-hmm. And yet you have no idea what that parent's yeah, going Yeah, that's through. true.
0: It could be the hour a day that exactly. they're giving themselves a little break exactly. from being exactly. able to I be completely it. on.
3: Yep. When, uh, at a certain time when my children were really young, I was a full-time stay-at-home dad and- Going into that, I remember thinking, "What part of this could be so difficult?" You know, <laughs> like, right? Like, I put on a video, or I, uh, I can make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Like, it's not. And and there, there certainly are things that are really challenging. But it is my experience was it was the relentlessness yeah. uh-huh. of yeah. the task that uh. you never punch out. Yep. And it's the accumulation of things. And you never really get to uh, savor a really wonderful moment. Like I remember thinking, if I could take my kids, and my kids are wonderful. I mean, I think this is just being a kid, is if I could take my kids to the moon, when we got back in the spaceship, I would be thinking, okay, I think we're set here. Everyone can just reflect on how amazing it was that we went to. And I think it would be like, uh, I want shotgun. Can we get a pizza? <laughs> I want to watch a video. No, Can no pizza. I want
0: subway. No. <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah. And it's right. just sort of the next thing, and yeah. it's then, and that tyranny of the mundane wow. and that constant flow, that's really really challenging. And so when there when there isn't something that is demanding your attention mm-hmm. to fix, the temptation is. OK, this is this is my break time. Right. But the problem is, is oh, it, wow, is that's
0: it, re- that gives me so much more empathy for what you just said, Jenna. Like, oh, I see. Yeah. Pa- parents are using yeah. that like, oh, right. It's not falling something right now. I can just get on my phone and yes. kind and of it, check out. And it
3: flips it. from yeah. Here are the really positive things that I can do with my child or with my teenager or whatever to is there a problem that I need to solve? Yeah. Is there something going on uh, that I have to take care of? Hopefully not. It all becomes kind of the negatives as opposed to some of the positives.
0: Yeah. Wow. So that's just completely brilliant. I did ask Stuart a question and I'm hoping we can get to the answer. I want to know how we begin to teach this psychological flexibility. Because it's not, as he said, you can't just do it in a weekend session. It's a lifelong process. But even if we could begin to offer just a few tools about things people can think about, even just to say, huh, I wonder what they need, rather than, I wonder why they're doing that.
2: Well, yeah. Well, I think part of the reason why I keep bringing this back to the parents and to us adults is because that's how we teach our kids psychological flexibility, We model it so that, you know, when I'm sitting here and I'm dysregulated in some way or feeling like some very intense emotion, I can be able to make space for that emotion and even talk with my kid or in my case, my niece and nephew about Yeah, absolutely. I feel angry frequently and it's about sort of making space for it. So I would say modeling is one thing. And then the two other sort of takeaways that are just little mantras for people would be the question of what, rather than what's wrong here, I wonder what I have to learn here. Because there's something to be learned in a situation. And if you can shift from the trying to figure out what's wrong to trying to figure out what there is to learn, that can, I think, give us a sense of efficacy, a sense of like, okay, there's something for me to grow from here. And then just that, I mean, I just love that quote so much from, from Skinner that the rat is always right. The sense of like, I am doing exactly what I am supposed to be doing given my learning history and my context, and so is my child. And so then I have the ability though to learn new skills so that I can interact differently with this. And Mm -hmm. so that might be going to a therapist who can help you learn things like diffusion and perspective taking and willingness. And it might be kind of doing reading on your own about those, those sorts of topics.
3: Mm -hmm. I think it's, I think it's important to to focus on that business of psychological flexibility in part because i do think that we are the emotional coaches of our children yeah mm. that's our probably mm-hmm. our best job is like here's what shows up inside of you and here's what to do with it
0: yeah
3: but i also think that our own rigidity uh psychologically uh is the headwind that we run into all of the time yeah mm. And yeah. I, that, to me, that's one of the, the stickiest things for me, and it's as one of the stickiest things for me as a parent, is seeing my own and my kids' variability in their behavior. Because once you see yourself or someone else behaving skillfully, it's easy to think, oh, they're capable of doing that now. Now I know where to set my expectation, or I know I know what I can count on. And then that behavior doesn't show up and something else does. So if I take care of my own, sort of getting my feet under me, being present, noticing my thoughts for what they are, not what they say they are, mm. uh, and when things show up for me emotionally, that I make room for them, uh, not only does that give me a better place from which, uh, from which I can behave as a parent, but if I'm transparent in that, yeah, if I'm transparent and 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 I think sometimes some of my my moments in parenting are not – I don't know if I'd say my better moments in parenting, but some of the important moments in parenting are not just when I feel like I did a good job, but actually when I don't show Mm -hmm. up the way I want to show up and I can go to my kids and instead of just like, sorry, want to watch a movie, (laughs) you know, I can can maybe give them a little bit of a backstage pass. Yeah. Uh, maybe not to all the rooms. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But a little bit of, here's what happened to me. Yeah, you know, and oh, that's uh, a,
0: such a brilliant
3: idea. And this is what happens to us. Mm-hmm. And 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 while I get frustrated that this is happening with you, dear God, it happened to me yeah, too. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Mm. Yeah, and just. Maybe one other thing, based on what um, Dr. Ablon was was talking about, this idea of, you know, having assuming that our kids um, that they it's not that they don't have the will, it's that they don't have the skill. Well, you may know that sort of intellectually as a parent, but that is very very hard to call up in those moments when. Uh, Your kids behaving in a way that scares you or that embarrasses you. And so one just very small trick you might try in that moment is a little diffusion exercise that uh, we do with clients all the time, which is simply taking a thought and adding other words to it. So saying, oh, my kid's just being a pain in the ass to, oh, I'm having the thought that my kid's being a pain in the ass Mm. to, wow, Now I'm noticing that I'm having the the thought thought. that my kid's being a pain in the ass. And literally saying that out loud is a way to slow you down and also get a little bit of distance from that thought so then you get to choose how to respond to your child. You're not responding in reaction to that thought.
0: I love this. Mm -hmm. And I I honestly Mm -hmm. want to address someone who's listening right now who might be curious and sort of attempting to try to parent in this way who has a partner who is like, this is bullshit. We're going to actually spank our kids. We're going to have them do what we say. We're the parent. We're not raising any soft snowflakes that are, you know, feel like they have license in this world because it's my way. Okay. What is wrong with that? Because it doesn't work. As- doesn't work. That's why.
2: I mean, even if even if we remove all of the like I want to live in a world where people are kind and compassionate to one another, even if we remove all the soft, squishy psychology therapist stuff. Yeah. It simply does not work. So if that's the kind of strategy that your partner or co-parent is kind of coming from, A, I think you have some things to work on as far as parenting together in those very different styles, but but B just respond based on the the practicality of it. It is very, very clear that that strategy does not work in the long run.
3: Hmm. I think in the long run is the key oh, because yeah. I think you can just tighten the screws up. Sure, you can b- really, bully, really in yeah. bully in the short run. And bully in the short run and get the behavior squished out of your kid yeah. that you want in that particular moment. But in the longer run, yeah. you're not going to see a repeat. A repetition of that behavior you're not going to see your kid learning the stuff that you want them to learn you sort of just bullied out the behavior and i think this mm-hmm. business of when you know you say uh to the person who says okay yeah i heard that it's actually will not skill or it's skill not will yeah. They just don't have the skills i think that uh that partner is going to say well Hell, yes, they have the skills. I've seen them do it before. Mm -hmm. I know they can do it. And I think it's really, really important that we don't think of skill as just, is it in the behavioral repertoire? Right. Like, if I don't tie my shoes, it might be because I don't know how. But if I tied my shoes yesterday and I'm just refusing to tie them today and you say they don't have the skill... It's like there's the the out-of-the-skin skill, like the stuff Mm -hmm. you do with your hands and your feet. Like Yes, you actually do have the skill to tie the shoe, but that's not the skill exactly or exclusively that we're talking about here. We're talking about the skills that mediate how much I can access those out-of-the-skin type skills. Yeah,
2: I may have the skill to be able to swim in my swimming pool, you throw me out in the middle of the ocean during a huge storm. That's a great analogy. I'm going to have more difficulty swimming. And mm-hmm. that's what we're asking the kid to do, to tie their shoe when they're emotionally dysregulated. It's in the middle of the ocean in the
3: storm. Yes. And and maybe uh, I'm just weaving the metaphor a little bit, but uh, sometimes the circumstances are a lot more challenging because, well, it isn't a nice smooth pool. It's these giant waves there's another bit of it where it's like, maybe we're still in the pool and I'm, and you're, you're saying you can swim, but I'm going, dun, 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 <laughs> dun, dun. And now you've got fear. <laughs> oh, right. So good. And like your form is all breaking down and you are oh, hyperventilating so and right now on. fear's getting in the way. So there's all this yeah, stuff that absolutely. like we do not show up in the best context with our best behavior. I don't. And not just as a parent, kind of across the board, sure. I don't. And I think understanding that there is no behavior
0: without understanding context Absolutely. is a key to
2: this. External and internal context. Yeah.
0: Yes. Dr. Avalon has a great um, quote. He says, you lose nothing by treating a child empathetically with the understanding that this may be difficult for them, but treating the child as if it didn't want to do, as if you didn't want to do as you ask it, sends you down a dangerous road. So... This idea of I can say I'm curious about why you did this and what how I can help you do it differently, but you've got to always be clear that what the behavior you actually wanted was for them to stand up and go through the grocery checkout line with you, right? Sure. Yeah. This
2: is not permissive parenting. Right. It's not. Yeah. This is about helping your child do the things that will be effective for them. Yeah.
0: And, and about the time that it takes to revolutionize this behavior, which is over the course of a lifetime. And then they turn into teenagers, oh, yeah. which is a completely different program.
2: <laughs> Godspeed with that. Amen.
0: <laughs> Dr. Jenna Lejeune and Dr. Brian Goff, thank you so much. And our guest today was Dr. Stuart Ablon. You can find out more about him at thinkkids.org. I'm Sheila Hamilton. This is Beyond Well. All right. I always leave this running in case we come yeah, up with other like parts of this discussion. Something. What
2: do you do? What do you I do? I love that. What's that? I just have to say that was freaking About brilliant. the fear? Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> I'm going to use that as absolutely the, that is such a better thing than Mary Had a Little. That's brilliant. Oh,
3: I like it's Mary exa- Had a Little.
2: I like Mary Had a Little too, but that one, it just produces
3: the feeling mm-hmm. amazing. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love mm-hmm. that. Yeah. So good. Yeah. Woo! Um, I am wondering though, like yeah. what do we what do we say to the parent who says, um, it isn't a question about whether my kid can act skillfully. It's a question of whether my kid like my kid isn't my kid isn't acting unskillfully, my kid is simply not doing the thing that I want them to do. So let's say your kid is cutting class at school. Mm-hmm. Are they being skillful? Well, you know, if what they want to do is not go to the class and they want to go down to the Seven Eleven with their friends and get Slurpees and they manage to sneak out of class without anybody seeing them and they pocket a little money on the side and blah, 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 and they get back to class without anybody noticing, they might say, "Yeah, oh, hell yeah, that was super skillful. It's not necessarily what you want as a parent. So is that unskillful behavior or is that them – sort of doing the stuff that they want to do. It just so happens that it's not what you want to do. I'm reminded of a time when we would sometimes say, particularly with clients, when you ask as a therapist, sometimes we ask people to do homework, fill out a sheet or journal something or track something. And um, people come back and uh, they'll say, uh, you'll see that the homework hasn't been done. Right. And, the question is, well, did they want to? Was it skill over will and blah, blah, blah? And my thought is they're not necessarily trying to be really good sure. clients. Sure. They're trying, to, they're trying to make their lives work. Right. Like, right. And, and the problem isn't so much that they weren't being skillful people in their lives. They just weren't being particularly skillful clients. But that's not bad and wrong. My job is to say this is how doing the thing that I would like you to do is somehow connected to that's the thing that's to important what you to want, you. Right. That's the collaborative yeah. part, yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah, yeah That's right. We don't necessarily yeah. need to record this part. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, I like it's, it's particularly good. I mean, and it draws it right back to why is it eventually that they would want to change their behavior because it's part of the collaboration about them having better lives and what they want, right?
2: Yeah. They, but this isn't just kids, right? Like, if you ask me. Any morning, I get up and I walk my dog every, single, er, every morning like 5.30, right? If you asked me any morning, do you want to get up and walk your dog for three and a half miles? My answer every single morning is, fuck no. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Absolutely not.
2: And the only way I can be consistent with that is not because I ask myself, is this really what I would cho- what I want to do? Yeah. But because I've tied it back into a way of being that is this part of this kind of longer pattern of values, that then I see, okay, I'm just going to do these things on habit that I know will kind of are taking me in the direction of this value. So I'm not even kind of making a decision at 5.30. I'm just like, I'm on autopilot because I decided somewhere along the line, me being the kind of person I want to be is a person who gets up at 5.30 and walks her dog every yeah. morning.
0: Well, it's, it's yeah. also, Got it. it gets back yeah. to parenting in that way of, If you're consistently making the right food choices, doing exercise for the pure joy and the relaxation that it gives you, if you're modeling. Who is
2: that person? Does that
0: person exist? (laughs) I don't. God, take a nap. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. But if you're modeling behavior that the kid sort of sees, they're likely also to go, oh, this is part of the repertoire of kind of what we do. It's kind of who we are, right?
2: Yes, but I think one thing you said there is really important though. If what your kid sees is, oh, my mom or my dad always makes all the right choices and they're always going to the gym and Mm -hmm. they get so much joy out of it and it's just like easy for them. They're probably not learning a whole lot other than my mom is freaking amazing. What's really the learning part I think is when your kid is able to see Gosh, actually, yeah, I would really like to have grilled cheese every single night. Or uh-huh. no, I don't actually want to go to the gym, and yet I choose to kind of willingly because it's important to me that I'm I. still an active parent. When yeah. you're, you right. know, when you have
3: kids
0: totally. and that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah and I really. think,
3: and I think linking it back to values because I think the other mis- the other lesson that can be. Mislearned is now my my mom is either amazing or my mom has tremendous self-discipline. oh and my she, gosh, yes. and she does the right thing. she does the right thing, and that
2: can oh, that yeah. can even
0: backfire, probably. Oh, just like, yeah, I I, <laughs> yeah. I have this really funny thing that when my daughter was young, I used to let her watch those cartoons that were very much made for adults, but she was young and loved the animation and I was old and loved the the filthy jokes. And so the joke (laughs) I'm just hoping she doesn't get them. (laughs) And the joke was, is that at a certain point she started getting the filthy jokes and then I had to turn them off for both of us. But (laughs) but I was constantly doing things that I thought were sort of on the line of being inappropriate. And um, she's so much more conservative than I am. She is so much more like um, really values and choice oriented in terms of what is right or wrong. And I am like, because I was kind of loose in those areas (laughs) of parenting, did she decide, no, I have to be this like very linear and really rule oriented and (laughs) very conservative parent? That's a
3: super good question. I wonder. I uh, I don't
0: know. Uh, I recently was
3: reason-making with a client, which is what I sometimes like to call that, yeah. where you mm-hmm. where you see an outcome and then you put the pieces together to tell a coherent yeah. story. And I say, um, do you like, I mean, in a really deep, fundamental, accurate way, do you know why you check your inbox on your email? No, I don't either, <laughs> but I do it. So if I don't really understand... The motivations, quote unquote, motivations that drive such a simple two dimensional kind of behavior, like checking the inbox on my email. How in the world could I possibly understand the motivations that drive most of my other behavior? I think. Uh, the the common wisdom on this is the stuff that motivates us the vast majority of is out, is outside of our awareness. Sure. I may be able to tell a story about why I check my email, but yeah. that's probably not what's going on. What
2: my up. one of my favorite things um in behaviorism uh, we talk about you know the answer to the why question mm-hmm. is is always conditioning history, conditioning history. Mm-hmm. I mean it's sort of easy for us from this perspective right. to answer that question because we sort of know it. Yeah. It's like well from we choose to know it. Conditioning history, biology,
3: uh, and prior experiences.
2: Exactly. And so, I remember <laughs> early on in dating, in dating my partner, um, I would ask him, and he's much more of a behaviorist kind of long-standing than I am. I came at this from an squishy attachment kind of perspective on things. I know, I know. But I would ask him, like, "Why did you do that?" Or, "Oh, why are you doing that?" And he literally would respond. Conditioning history? <laughs>
3: like, no, no, you're not allowed to say that. First of all, it's a cop out. Second of all, exactly. it's a little super nerdy to exactly. say that. Yeah. And third of all, it's a cop out.
2: And <laughs> it's a cop out. And you're irritating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No conditioning kidding. history.
3: <laughs> Nice
2: Doc. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Fortunately, after 20-some years, he's learned he's been punished enough for that answer that he doesn't give that answer anymore. He makes up a different story about why he's doing something. There you go. <laughs> I,
0: I was thinking I wish we'd had Dr. Ablon um, longer because I wanted to ask him how many of these um, practical rules and these behaviors that you can be taught are applicable to like kids that are, are not on a normal diversity or neurobiology that's the term he used wasn't it neurodiversity yeah. whatever th- they're they're mm-hmm. different so so they may have autism or they may have asperger's or they may have and then can you still problem solve with kids that are are way more complicated do you is there a basis for using these kind of skills i suppose any skills would be helpful in dealing with kids who or more dysregulated, but I was w- really curious about that. Well,
2: we do know actually the foundation on which ACT is built. It's uh, called relational frame theory. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's you talk about nerdy, super nerdy, um, super but nerdy. super nerdy, but. Um, RFT was actually developed primarily around helping kids on the autism spectrum. Wow. Yeah, learning perspective-taking abilities, which has to do with empathy and all of these other really important skills. So, yes, I, I mean, my guess is, I'm not a kid person, but my guess is these same principles absolutely would apply. You might need to teach them in a different way, and they might have a different starting point. Yeah. Um, but yeah, teaching, teaching things, oh God, if we could teach our kids one thing i just really think flexible perspective taking would be way up there e- on explain my list. that
0: for people that don't even know what that means though
2: Yeah, the flexible perspective taking means both am I able to be here and see my perspective yeah, and simultaneously see that Brian has this different perspective. Mm -hmm. But it is also being able to take different perspectives on ourselves. So one of the ways that I think about it is like if I'm – Looking at a mug that has a symbol on one side and I'm only looking at the mug of myself from that front view, I only ever think, oh, it's this view. And so learning how to be able to sort of like take different perspectives on ourselves Mm. so that we have a more flexible way of responding so it's no longer just – well, I'm an introvert, so therefore I don't do a podcast, which is absolutely the case for me. It's, yes, yeah, sometimes I'm an introvert. And then there are other times when it's, you know, important enough to me that I'll take a different perspective and say, nope, today I'm going to be somebody who does a podcast. Wow, that's
0: super cool.
3: And, And when you look at the mug and you see the symbol, it isn't just from this perspective, I can see this symbol and this is what it looks like from this perspective. It's forgetting that the yes. stuff that we Thank see, you. we see because we see it from, from the place a that perspective. we see. It. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. We don't we don't experience in the same way that we don't experience our thoughts as thoughts. We don't mm-hmm. experience our perspective as our spe- perspective. We yeah. just think that the way it looks from me, from from where I sit, is the way it is. Yeah,
0: yeah.
3: Mm. Uh, and we can shift perspective by what does it look like from somebody else's perspective. We can shift perspective like how will this. How will I think about this or how would I view this uh, at the end of the day or next year Mm. or something like that? And we can even
2: take the perspective of, you know, we would call this selfless context or this transcendent sense of self um, where being able to see that there's an I here. That is the place in which all of these experiences are happening, but I am not the content of my thoughts and feelings.
0: Yeah,
3: um, and we just went into the deep end of the pool.
0: We
2: did a, well, little, you know bit. <laughs> but but a little bit. Well, you know what? a little
0: bit because I'd like to be more real with listeners about like the stuff we go through every week. The I come into the studio today. I've just learned we had a major technical error. I am concerned about getting a good phone line with Dr. Ablon. I'm feeling like my entire, like this, this whole thing is like, it's not working and you're not working and blah, blah. And how real that absolutely. feels in my yeah, body absolutely. is what
1: completely
0: yeah. blows me away because I now, yeah. through you mostly, I'm learning these skills of standing back, yeah. looking at the thoughts, mm-hmm. separating from them from the facts, taking mm-hmm. a breath, taking other people's perspective. And yet, in my body, Absolutely. the failure yeah. is so real.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and f- kind of from our perspective, what's super important there is it's not that that is untrue. The problem is that that's the only thing you're thinking and feeling at the moment. All you see in that moment is I'm a failure. This is a failure. You're not able to see that as this whole sort of like stream of thoughts and feelings that are coming up in your body. It it narrows our focus so much. And so that's why we talk about flexible perspective taking. It's like, can you open up that perspective a little bit? Yeah. So more stuff
3: gets in. Well, and when you when you can experience the perspective as the perspective, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that you no longer see it that way. Right. I mean, I think uh-huh. that's the really right. important part. Right. Yeah. Right. Is it's like the story that I told about, uh, the person sitting on the plane who's terrified and is gripping the armrests and everything. When, when, when they start scanning the, mm-hmm. the the passengers and see a kid looking out the window with wonder or see somebody else falling asleep reading a book and being sort of bored, it doesn't mean that they say, oh, there's a different way to experience this. So now all of a sudden my fear has gone right. away. It's that my body is still responding to the perspective that I have yeah. as opposed to to the truth of mm. The universe and to the truth of me. Well, know? it's also so you have this you have this emotional yeah, physical in yeah. your body reaction, but you're
0: reacting to
3: the thoughts and the feelings that are showing up yeah. in the same way that I was reacting to the thoughts and feelings that show up to me. Yeah, yeah.
0: The, what's interesting to me is if I begin to take it out further and further, and we'll have this discussion with Dr. Ablon about kids, but when adults get in this looping. And they believe the feeling in their body. They don't question it. They don't try to take a different perspective. They don't kind of look at, well, those are just my thoughts, but really what evidence is there to back this up, right? It begins that spiral into depression. And I can even see in the way that my late husband talked about his self. I'm worthless. I'm no good. I'm a burden to people. I And I'm thinking it's so important that we take this perspective, that we take off the glasses and look through the glasses and realize, Mm -hmm. oh, my gosh, this is a completely different view.
2: Well, Sheila, like if I had come in, I saw how you were looking at Brian when he came in and was having a harder morning. And if I had come in here and said, and you knew how I was feeling, that I was feeling exactly what you were feeling, like, oh, I'm such a failure. I hate this. I'm terrible at this you're probably like, I'll say natural. It's not really natural. It's learned, but yeah. r- your like instinctive response to me would be to be kind and yeah. to be gentle, right? right. Yeah. And so if you can start having just a little bit of distance from your own experience yeah. and be able to see, oh, there's a body that's a body called Sheila, that's having all these really hard thoughts and feelings going on. Oh, how do I want to like treat any other human critter that is feeling that way? It'll just naturally, it'll kind of come more easily yeah. than, okay, now I know I'm supposed to be self-compassionate, damn it. Uh-huh. Does
0: right. Does that make sense? You know, when I totally. When
3: you, like, you were first introducing yourself on the very first podcast, you talked about how you you really focus on relationships. Yeah. And among the relationship types that Absolutely. you listed was your relationship with yourself. Probably the most mm. important one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: I, I love this because I, I honestly think if there's anything that I'm that I kind of feel in the zeitgeist of my friends and their kids and that especially younger people trying to find a way in the world is this like, Ugh, I'm seeing all these examples of other, other people doing right. it better. exactly, And they're in my face every yep. day, mm-hmm. especially if I happen to look at Instagram. And yep. so why am I not enough and why am mm-hmm. I not this? And if there's anything that I could, get, I guess, instill is this idea that for a, we we've all got to learn that self compassion skill that you said. But b, just learning the skills about how we're thinking about ourselves is going to make us all healthier. Yeah, and happier. Yeah, and c that just because today I had those thoughts, it doesn't mean that I'm that person. I mean, I do think that there is a strange way in which people will go. Oh, Sheila, she's a really happy person. Right. And I'm like, well, that doesn't really sometimes. explain the whole. Sometimes. sometimes. Yeah, just because you're feeling that way doesn't yeah. mean that
3: you're going to feel that way tomorrow or later or forever. Right. But also, just because you, and I can say this, unfortunately, from my own experience, mm-hmm. just because sometimes you get a glimpse behind the curtain and can sort of see that observing self, right. that
0: eye. Right.
3: Yeah, sometimes it's really elusive.
0: Yeah. Oh, and especially when your body has started to participate in the whole thing. And
3: that stuff sort of comes and goes because it's easy to sort of talk about this stuff and then say like, oh, my God, what a fraud. Yeah. Yeah. Because I've had a really tough week. Yep. You know, Um, but it's like, mm -hmm, yeah, that floated in. Yeah.
0: Right.
2: (laughs) Well, so it took
3: residence here and it will float out. Yeah. And what you're
2: I I love what you're saying Sheila about mm-hmm. it's really hard to be able to sort of access that more self-compassionate or slightly kind of distant stance on yourself when you're in living in, in your body totally. and it is actually giving you information that is oh my god this is so 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 terrible. Yeah. And so I think one of one of the other things that people do not only do they get caught in those thoughts and feelings but they also get caught in this cycle that those thoughts and feelings mean something mm. and that they're supposed to get rid of them. Like if I didn't think, if I could just stop thinking I was a fraud, then I would stop being a fraud. And so then we do all these super unhelpful things to try and get rid of thoughts and feelings as right. opposed to simply like, yeah, there's that. I also just thought about a Twinkie fl- flying across the, s- the ceiling and I'm not going to get super attached to that
0: one either. Well, I'll tell you what's fascinating about taking the perspective that you've taught me to take is that I began to really look at how that spiraling started. Mm-hmm. It certainly wasn't just that a file got corrupted. Sure. It mm-hmm. certainly wasn't that I was worried about the phone call. Mm-hmm. Nope. It's that earlier in the week, I'm having a difficult time with my mom who's in assisted living and I am the kid she likes the most and I have to go help in these really tricky situations with Mm -hmm. Sibs, right? Mm -hmm. It's also about everything to do with my daughter. It's also about where we're at in in our particular life. And I'm like, oh, now I can see that it wasn't just I let one thing trigger me. There was a lot of little clicks toward this. uh, And
2: isn't that just a kinder way of approaching? Yeah. And maybe there is something that you need to learn. I mean, I'm not saying there is, but maybe there is something you need to learn here, but you're going to learn that thing from a place of kindness more than you are. God, I'm such a freaking loser.
0: Totally. And also I will say just talking about it openly has a magical quality of somewhat offloading that sure. thing that's happening in well, your and, body. And sure. what's
3: happening when we do that is what what Jenna was referring to when we have people say things like uh, when we add, when we have people add words. Yeah. Like I notice a thought that, or oh look, my mind just generated a thought that mm-hmm. that when we talk about the stuff that goes on not the stuff that goes on out there in our life, but the stuff that goes on in here in our life and what it's like, that is itself a diffusion activity. Absolutely. It's so great. And we're just catching it on the the fly. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. So I've had many people say in response to this program, oh, wow, is this what therapy is like? And I am like, you know, I haven't done that much therapy. I wish I'd done more, especially when I was younger, coming into this skill building thing. Mm. I it's really never think too it, late, uh, she <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But because it is almost like you get a personal coach, yeah. you get a trainer yeah. for your mind. Yeah. Yeah. And I was talking with this uh, very hot hairdresser that I go to. He's so cute. <laughs> But he grew up gay and he was in a very religious family and he said, I knew that if I spent any money on a trainer, it needed to be for my mind. And so he started working with a therapist from Mm -hmm. the time he was 16 in order to come out properly to both to himself and to the Mm -hmm. world and now to grow his business and to skill build into a next new relationship. And he's like, best money I ever spent.
2: I've been in and out of therapy my adult life periodically. I'm in therapy right now. It's kind of like, oh yeah, now would be a time in my life when it would be helpful to have somebody who just has a different perspective on me than I have on me. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So I hope you enjoyed that conversation a little bit of behind the scenes at Beyond Well, and we sure appreciated talking with Dr. Stuart Avalon. Make it a great week.